Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. It is when we are in fellowship with the Lord that God the Holy Spirit is able to work in terms of helping us to understand His Word, applying that Word to our life, producing spiritual growth, leading towards spiritual maturity. When we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And so God has given us a grace principle for recovery that if we admit or acknowledge our sin to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in your creation that is imperceptible to us. It operates within a realm that is untouchable by either our unaided reason or unaided experience. And yet your word has revealed to us the absolute truth regarding all things that we need to know. Father, we thank you that your word is absolutely sufficient, that it is infallible, and that it is true. And that as we study these things, that God the Holy Spirit uses them to develop our maturity, help us to understand your plans and purposes for our own lives, and to see how our spiritual life works within the entirety of the cosmos as you are bringing to a conclusion at some point in the future uh, your plans and purposes for all of your creatures leading to the resolution of sin and evil in the universe. Now, Father, as we study The things that we look at this morning, we pray that you'd help us to have a better understanding of your plans, your purposes, and that that we would be able to further orient our own thinking to the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're taking a topical study in the midst of Revelation chapter 5 as we come towards the end with the mention of of angels there again to focus on this doctrine that we call the angelic conflict. Sometimes it's referred to or thought of in terms of the title of uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's well-known work, The Invisible War. Sometimes people talk about it in terms of spiritual warfare. Other times people talk of it in terms of the satanic rebellion against God. There are different terms that are used by different people. But the idea is that human history doesn't operate just in a vacuum, that there is something much broader that is going on within the universe, and it has to do with something that transpired in eternity past in the angelic realm, and that is Satan's revolt against God. This is crucial to understand as background for what happens in in Revelation. And as I begin this sort of side series a few weeks ago, I understood how important that was. As I'm drilling down into this subject, I realize there's such confusion today over so many aspects of angels, the doctrines of angelology, the spiritual warfare, and its relationship to uh, the end times that I'm slowing down and trying to resolve a few uh, questions that uh, come up and that people people focus on. 
As I pointed out in the last several weeks, by way of introduction, angels are important to the book of Revelation for approximately a third of all references to angels in the New Testament take place within the prophetic section of Revelation. Between Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 22, there are uh, approximately 65 references to angels and angelic activity. So we really can't understand the dynamics of what happens in the tribulation and why it happens the way it does if we don't come to it with a firm understanding of what's happening in the angelic realm. And just as a side note on that, if we look at what's just happening in these first two chapters of this prophetic section, Revelation 4 and 5, there's such a heavy focus on on the angels. The centerpiece of these two chapters, of course, is the Lamb coming forward to receive the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll, and he's prepared to open it, which begins these series of judgments. But surrounding the throne of God, you have the four living creatures, who are a classification of angels, as we'll see this morning. You have the 24 elders, representatives of the church-age believers, and now we have the angelic host, the armies of the angels coming together singing, singing praise to God. So just by way of review to orient those who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, the angelic conflict, let's have a definition. It's the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. Uh, Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following, uh, talk some about spiritual warfare, and that is the focus as it comes into human history. The angelic conflict, in summary, began in eternity past when God's greatest creature of all, who is normally referred to as Lucifer in that pre-fall condition, led approximately one-third of the angels in revolt against God. As a result of that, there apparently was some sort of judgment upon those uh, angels. Matthew 25 tells us that in reference to the lake of fire, it says that it has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, if it's been prepared for them, why aren't they there? So that's a question people ask. So that indicates there's a postponement of that judgment and that human history relates in some way to that Judgment now, just as a preview of what's coming up so you don't fall asleep, you don't miss out, is many of us have heard the phrase that, the, that human history is designed to resolve the angelic conflict. What does that mean to resolve the angelic conflict? Well, we're going to get into that uh, this morning. Well, what have we looked at so far? Well, we looked at angels first and foremost. We have to understand some of the things the Bible teaches and reveals about angels and some of the technical vocabulary there just to be able to appreciate what we talk about. I talked about how we know angels exist from the scriptures, the biblical evidence for the existence of angels, the creation of the angels, and the nature of the angels. When talking about the nature of the angels, we looked at the fact that angels are creatures. They are not eternal. They have been created by God. And in talking about their nature, I emphasize that they were immaterial spirit creatures, and in talking about that, it raised a question for clarification, which I addressed last time. In answering the question, I assume people had heard what I had taught in corollary material the week before. You know, somebody fell asleep, few people weren't paying attention, or they weren't here. This always happens. We have to hear things so many times. They say a genius has to hear things eight times before he hears. The rest of us have to hear it 30 times. So I had three people. Now, when one person asks me a question, I'll address it. But when three people ask me the same question within six hours of the message, I'm ready to come. <laughs> did, I, did I or did I not communicate this morning? So the original question was, when I made the point that each angel is an individual creation. They don't have it. They are autonomous species, as it were. They don't marry and make baby angels. So there's not this genetic unity among the angels like there are among human beings. And the question was, what's the support for that? And the support is from passages that indicate that whenever angels appear, they always appear as males. Not that they are male sexually, because they're immaterial creatures. 
And that was a key idea. And so I made the point that they're not inherently sexual. Well, as soon as I said that, people said, well, what about Genesis 6? <laughs> well, I had covered that the week before. And I just figured people would put two and two together. Well, I know, it's always early in the morning. Angels are immaterial beings, which means they, they can't enter into physical, material, uh, procreative activity with human beings. Something has to happen. And so the week before, I talked about how in uh, Genesis 18 to 19, we have this situation where the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, along with two angels, they're identified as angels when you get into chapter 19 and they go to Sodom, they appear to Abraham on the plains of Mamre, just outside of Hebron, and they come up, and there's all this physical terminology there. They have feet that Abraham washes. He doesn't, you know, his hands don't go through their feet when he starts to wash them. He doesn't touch their feet and go, wow, these people are different. As far as he can tell, they, they look, act, touch, perform just like human beings. They sit, they lie down, they eat food that's been prepared for them, they rest, they're refreshed, uh, they drink. Uh, later when the two angels go to... Uh, Sodom and the perverts in Sodom are trying to get Lot to let these strangers out so they can have uh, sexual relations with them. Uh, Lot comes outside and he tries to dissuade the perverts and they're about to uh, attack him. So the one of the angels reaches out and grabs him with his hand, the text says, very physical terminology, grabs him and pulls him back inside. The point is that Angels, obviously, from these texts, can transform their immaterial bodies of light into concrete physical bodies with the normal biological functions of human bodies. And that this is apparently how the dynamic occurred in Genesis chapter 6. Now, in our study, we'll get into that, and we'll look at the other corollary passages in Jude and in uh, and in First uh, Peter related to uh, that particular issue. But we know a couple of things uh, for sure. Uh, one is that angels are immaterial beings, so they can't uh, enter into uh, physical uh, procreative activity. Second, we know for sure that they can take on physical form from Genesis 18 and 19. And third, we know that the term sons of God is a technical term in the Old Testament, the Neha Elohim, that always refers to angels. And so somewhere within that dynamic, we have to explain what's going on. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it transpired. Everybody wants to know pretty specific details. They're just not there. So at some point, we have to say this is what the text says and move on from there. So we went through that in terms of basic introduction to angels. And then I began to talk about the different types of angels, different classifications of angels, that are mentioned in the scripture. And the first place we went to last week was in uh, Psalm 89, 7, and 8, that there is an angelic council that meets in the heavens. There was a unity among the angels we know from Job 38, 4 through 7, that when God laid the foundation of the earth, all the sons of God, all, not a division there, but all the sons of God shouted for joy when he laid the foundation of the earth. Psalm 89, uh, 6 and 7 talks about the all the angels that are around him, that circle him, that surround him. Psalm 89.8 refers to God as Lord God of hosts and uses that uh, Hebrew word sabah. You see the plural when you sing a mighty fortress is our, go- is our God, Lord Sabaoth. That's not Sabbath. That's not some antiquated way of saying Sabbath. Somebody didn't have a typo and slipped that O in there. It's the Hebrew plural for the antiquated English word hosts, but really means, look it up in the dictionary, means army. And so the singular means army, and the plural would mean army. So this phrase, O Lord God of hosts, is a term armies, which refers to the angels. And just so repetition is a key to remembrance, those of you who remember this uh, editorial cartoon, or figure that came out for uh, in Israel, you have the Israeli soldier protecting the family on the on the right side, and the uh, Palestinian terrorists hiding behind the innocent family on the left side. It's a great propaganda tool. But the Hebrew at the top 
reads ruach. Remember, it reads from right to left. So the first word on the on the right is ruach, which means spirit or attitude or the mentality, the thinking of tzachal, which is the tzachal, which is the it's an acronym. Tza, the first letter means tzaba. The second ha is haganah. The lamed the l is l'israel. Tzaba haganah l'israel. The Army of the for the defense of Israel. That's is that that acronym is what is on the shoulder patch of every Israeli soldier. That's like we American Army Armed Forces have an American flag. They all have tzahal on their on their uh, shoulder patch, and that first word sabah is the same word that we have throughout the text for army. It's the army for the defense of Israel. So we then come to our second category of angels. Second category of angels are called cherubim. That's the, usually the King James always transliterated that plural, but the I M is actually the Hebrew plural ending, and the singular is cherub. And so we have the Hebrew word cherubim, which it refers to a specific category of angel and we understand that what distinguishes the cherubs is that they have four wings the key passages that you go to there's a number of places other places they're mentioned but Genesis 3:24 Ezekiel 1 5 to 24 Ezekiel 10 1 to 15 and Hebrews 9 5 are some of the key key passages that mention the cherubs they are pictured as part human and part animal. Now, what's interesting about this is your cherubs are created before the animal creation uh, on planet Earth. So when it describes them as having the four faces of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, this predates the creation of men, lions, oxes, and eagles. So that tells us that when God created the angels and created the cherubs, he already knew what he was going to do. He, his whole plan was already in his, in his thinking, and he already had the prototype for, for human beings, for lions, oxes, angels, other animals, I mean eagles, other animals were already in his thinking. They are described as being full of eyes in Ezekiel 10:12, which indicates the extent of their knowledge. This is a typical metaphor. Eyes indicate uh, learning, knowledge. Uh, God's eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth indicates knowledge, and full of eyes indicates the extent of their, of, of their knowledge. They are also portrayed as gleaming like flaming torches or burnished bronze, coals of fire, which indicates that, once again, this idea that they are composed of light that just shines uh, brilliantly as, uh, as they are displayed, and they are seen in a couple of different places. But there are passages that indicate that they not all cherubs have four faces in Ezekiel uh, a couple of passages in Ezekiel 41 discussing the cherubs in the, that are portrayed in the millennial temple. They have two faces. So apparently there's not a fixed representation of this category of angel. Now, of course, this is important because to understand the cherubs because Lucifer, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, was a, an, the, the, is called the anointed cherub who covered. He was a, the highest of all the cherubs. The cherubs were the highest order of all the angels. And so he was the highest of all of God's creatures and most closely associated with the throne of God. And we'll see that in a little more detail when we get into uh, our study of Ezekiel chapter 28. First mention of cherubs is in Genesis 3.24 when God drives uh, Adam and Eve out of the garden, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, God stations a guard, cherubim, a host of them. There's, there's a group of them. It's not just one, but the Garden of Eden is surrounded by a guard detail of cherubs to keep uh, any human beings from coming in and having access 
to the tree of life. The next time we really see them mentioned is that there is they are portrayed on the uh, mercy seat, the top section of the Ark of the Covenant. And this, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is referred to as the mercy seat. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had the uh, tablets of the Ten Commandments in the tabernacle and later in the temple, uh, setting not inside, but setting in front of the uh, the Ark. You had Aaron's rod that budded and the manna. This disappeared later on from history, but inside were the broken tablets indicating man's sin, so that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood from the sacrifice, place it on the mercy seat, and as these two angels, these two cherubs are looking down, they are there's atonement. So they are associated with the holiness and the righteousness of God and the, satis- the fact that God's holiness and righteousness are satisfied. The Greek word for propitiation, one of those words you all use every day in your everyday language, which means satisfaction. Okay, the, the New Testament doctrine of propitiation comes from the word for the mercy seat. And so this is a picture of the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross when the God's character is righteousness and justice is satisfied by that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When you get into other passages such as Ezekiel that describe the cherubs, other places that talk about how God is enthroned above the cherubs, the emphasis seems to be that cherubs are always associated with the holiness and the righteousness of God. They seem to have this special role to guard, protect the holiness and righteousness of God. That is the association. In the depiction of the cherubs in Ezekiel chapter 1, cherubs surround the chariot throne of God in Ezekiel's vision. In the early tabernacle and later in the temple, the cherubs are depicted on the veil that hung between the outer holy place and the inner holy of holies. So they were embroidered into the veil itself, and then inside the holy place you had them uh, on the on the ark in Solomon's ark, he, uh, Solomon's temple rather, he placed two fifteen feet tall uh, cherubs. Each had a fifteen foot wingspan. So these huge golden cherubs were set inside the holy of holies, with a each having a five foot wingspan, which met in the middle. In the Solomonic temple, there were figures of cherubs carved into the walls and into the doors of the temple and woven into various fabrics that decorated uh, the temple. And in the future millennial temple, let's skip past those verses, in the future millennial temple, Ezekiel 41, 18, and 19, uh, uh, Ezekiel describes the future temple in the millennial kingdom has been carved with cherubs and palm trees, and a palm tree was between cherub and cherub, and every cherub had two faces, not four as we saw earlier. So apparently there are these different depictions of the of the cherubs. Their emphasis and their association is always with the glory of God, with his righteousness. So whenever we read about cherubs, we, there also is in the background there this this emphasis on the holiness of God. So that's the cherubs. The second category is a similar term, similar creature, the seraphs. The seraphim is the plural. These are mentioned in only one place, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. They have six wings. So cherubs have four wings. Uh, seraphs have six wings. The root word in the Hebrew means burning ones. Once again, we have this picture. Uh, remember, the cherubs were pictured as burning, as coals of fire, as burnished bronze. The seraphs are pictured that same same way. It emphasizes that purity. Burning always emphasizes that purity of the holiness and the righteousness of God. They, the uh, seraphs, point number two, they have faces, they have feet, they have hands. They fly above the throne of God singing, Holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. They use two wings to cover their feet, uh, two to fly with, and two to cover their faces because they cannot look upon the glory of God. 
and their duties seem to be to praise the glory of God and to proclaim his holiness and his righteousness. So like cherubs, they are associated with the holiness, the purity of God. The third category that we have in the scripture, these are mentioned, as I said, the passages are Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. We won't read through those. We'll just skip over them. The third category of angels are the living creatures. The Greek word that's used in Revelation chapter 4, 6 through 9 is zoan. These are living creatures. They're described also as uh, uh, burning ones. They are have faces of a lion, a calf, man, and an eagle. They're very similar to cherubs, except cherubs had, what, four wings? The living creatures have six wings. So there seems to be uh, a slight difference, and they sing a song similar to the seraphim. So there's a certain similarity between these three orders of angels and but yet the scripture gives them different names, different identification, and slightly different different functions. The next two uh, categories of angels actually have to do with individual angels. Uh, the fourth is Michael the archangel. Arch means the first, the highest of all of the angels. He is. Uh, pictured as contending with Satan over the body of Moses in Jude 1 9. He is the archangel. There's not more than one. He seems to have replaced Lucifer as the uh, leader of the holy angels following the satanic rebellion. Then we have Gabriel, and Gabriel is mentioned twice in the scripture in Daniel 9.21. And Luke 1.26, he seems to be the special messenger that God uses. He, seem, he is specifically associated with communicating revelation and interpretation of that revelation as it applies to God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the future. So this gives us just a breakdown. Now we know what cherubs are, seraphs, the living creatures, uh, the archangel, and Gabriel. Now, since we've mentioned cherubs, we can now understand the reference in Ezekiel 28 to uh, this cherub who covered Ezekiel 28. We'll go there second, but uh, we'll mention it ahead of time. Ezekiel 28 refers to the anointed cherub that covers. Now, there's folks today, a lot of theologians who have uh, made a shift in how they interpret Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Historically and traditionally, these two passages have been understood to refer to the fall of Satan. Now, there have been other interpretations down through history. We'll go through that in some detail. But uh, this morning, I'm just going to introduce you to the whole concept of of Satan's fall, Lucifer's fall, and the introduction of of evil into into the universe. But you have this type of terminology in both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that just can't describe a human being, even though some say, well, it's just hyperbole. There are other elements within the passage that seem to argue against taking these as just uh, some sort of figure of speech uh, or, or hyperbole. This is called the anointed cherub that covers. These words are so loaded with with theological significance in the scripture. That first word anointed is the same word we have to refer to Jesus, to the coming Mashiach. That's the Hebrew word for anointed one. In Greek, it's Christos. So this creature that falls in Ezekiel 28 is called the Mashiach, the anointed one. So that immediately indicates some sort of priestly role among the angels, he is the anointed cherub, the highest of all the cherubs. Now, the basic root idea of Mashiach is just appointed, so he has a specifically appointed role that distinguishes him above all of the other, all of the other cherubs and all of the other angels, and he is said to be the anointed cherub who covers. And this idea, again, is re- of covering is related to the throne of God. So he is appointed above all the cherubs, all the angels, to be the one who is most closely associated with with the throne of God. And then there is this failure that is identified in Ezekiel chapter 20:28. Now, one of the things that's important about understanding 
the whole question of the angelic conflict. I, I mentioned it earlier that we've often heard someone say that that the angelic conflict was designed, uh, or that the human, the creation of the human race was designed to resolve the angelic conflict, not to solve it. That, that's a different word with a different nuance. To resolve it, what's being resolved? And a lot, I, over the years, I've talked to people. In fact, yesterday I was on the phone for a while discussing some related issues of eschatology to this with uh, uh, my friend, Dr. Ice. And uh, Tommy said, you know, I, I heard these tapes. I heard Charlie. I heard others talking about the angelic conflict. And they always said it was to re- that the human race was created to resolve the angelic conflict, but I never understood what it meant. Taught it for years. Never understood what it meant. And... Um, and that's true for a lot of people, I think. They just go, what does that mean? How does it resolve the angelic conflict? And how it resolves the angelic conflict is related to the doctrine of evil. That's what's resolved. Because once God creates creatures with volition, there's the potential of disobedience, sin, and evil. And once evil enters the universe, evil has to eventually be judged. But... And when we look at God's plan, apparently it had to be done the way it's being done, and it took a long period of time in order to do that. So let's plug this into our understanding of the origin of evil. First of all, we have to recognize that every creature, including the angels, was created by God. There's nobody else creating anything. No angels, no demons. Satan doesn't create anything. Uh, only God is the creator. We see passages such as John 1, 3. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Everything in the universe is created by God. Colossians 1, 16, specifically it's created by the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is the architect of the plan, and God the Son is the one who carries it out. He is the construction manager. He directs all things. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him in context that's the Lord Jesus Christ. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones, and these terms relate to angels, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, remember, God is perfect, and he is not going to create anything less than perfect. He doesn't create evil. He doesn't create sin. So all of the angels came from the hand of God, just as man did, in perfect righteousness. So at the beginning of the angelic creation, they are all perfectly righteous. They're created perfect. They're created holy. There is no sin found in them. Yet we know from the New Testament that at some time, and we have pinpointed that last week and the week before between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that there was a rebellion that took place among the angels. Later on, as we come into the New Testament, there's the reference, or even the Old Testament, there's a reference to the serpent and the devil. In Genesis chapter 3, in Job, it talks about Satan, the accuser. Where does he come from? Does he just pop into existence? All of a sudden, he's there. Has he always been there? Is he eternal? This is a problem if... if if Isaiah 14 isn't talking about the fall of Satan, and Ezekiel 28 isn't talking about the fall of Satan, then there is nothing in the Revelation to talk about the origin of evil in the universe. Nothing. Then it becomes speculation. Then why wouldn't the Bible be a dualistic book where you just have the eternal existence of, of good and evil? Where, where does this come from? So that, that's, that's one of the serious problems theologically that you have if you take those two passages out of the discussion, which is unfortunately what is happening with, and, and, uh, with many people today. Revelation 12.7 talks about these, these angels. War broke out in heaven. This is something we'll get to in the future. It talks about this war that breaks out in heaven halfway through the tribulation. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fight. And this is when they're thrown out of heaven. Now, one of the curious things that you may not have realized when you have studied prophecy in the past or studied what goes on during the tribulation 
is that there, there's a very strange scenario, as far as we're concerned right now, that takes place halfway through the tribulation. There is this battle that we just referenced that takes place in the heavenlies, and as a result of that, Satan and the demons are cast out of heaven. hasn't happened yet. They still have access. Job 1, other passages that we've looked at, they still have access to heaven. They're cast out at that point down to the earth, and at that final point towards the end of the tribulation, they are visible on earth. There's this angelic army that is being kept in isolation under the Euphrates River that is released during this latter part of the tribulation, and there is an attack on human beings from these 200 million demons that takes place in the tribulation period. There is this interaction between human beings and demons in the tribulation. Angels are visible. You have angels that will fly through the heavens announcing the gospel uh, to human beings. So there's a, an interchange there. It almost sounds like science fiction or fantasy, but that is what is depicted in the latter part of the tribulation. Now, why is that? What, what it suggests is that as, as evil is finally being judged and everything comes together at the end of the tribulation, all evil among all the creatures is, is going to be judged, and so it all comes together there uh, at the end. So we learn about the devil and his angels. The Pharisees talk about Satan being in charge of the demons in Matthew 12:24, Matthew 25:41's passage I referenced earlier when we have the reference to the devil and his angels already being uh, uh, sentenced to the everlasting to the everlasting fire. So these three passages simply reinforce for us the fact that these fallen angels who followed Satan are identified as as demons. Now let's look at very briefly at this whole concept of evil and the origin of evil. First point, of all religions, only Judaism and Christianity have an answer to the origin of evil. Only Judaism and Christianity have an answer to the origin of evil. Let me, uh, let me explain what this problem is. This is a second point. The problem of evil is that critics of Christianity often ask, how can a, how can a loving God allow suffering and evil to occur, to occur? I don't know if you've ever run into that in talking to somebody, but often you find folks who have had some tragedy in their life take place, and they're so angry, they're so bitter against God, that they say, how can a uh, loving God allow this to happen? If you are uh, witnessing to uh, someone of Jewish background, often the Holocaust looms very heavily in, in their thinking. If, if God really loved us, how could he let something, uh, uh, some horror of such enormity ever take place? And this is uh, often a major uh, problem, a major stumbling block for Jews to understand and even believe in God anymore because of what happened uh, during the Holocaust. The way this is usually phrased in a more academic way is that there's this alleged conflict between the power of God, his omnipotence, and the love of God. The argument will be phrased that if God is all-powerful, then he must not be a loving God because of all the suffering that exists. If he is all-powerful, then he would stop the suffering if he really loved us. That's, that's the idea. Uh, and if God is truly loved, then he must not be very powerful because uh, of the evil and suffering that exists. So there's this tension. It's a false tension that is generated there because what is missed is maybe there is a, a higher good Maybe God knows more than we know. By definition, he would, of course. He's omniscient. And so he is going to be able to, what Romans 8.28 says, work all things together for good. There is, he allows temporarily the existence of evil so that there will be an ultimate and final judgment and resolution to the evil problem. 
And so the existence of the human race is part of that. Now, I had a chart out of context here a minute ago, and I'm going to go back to it. This is a timeline. At the very top, we have God who is eternal. The timeline there has an arrow at each end, indicating that there's no beginning and no end. God is eternal. At some point in eternity past, God created the angels. They are not eternal, but they will last for eternity. And so that line begins at some point in the indefinite past and goes on into eternity in the future. Following his creation of the angels, God creates the universe. Job 38, 4 through 7, the sons of, I mean, the angels, the sons of God shouted for joy when he laid the foundation of the earth. So the angels existed before the universe. Then he creates the human race. Evil comes into existence between the creation of the universe and the creation of the human race. Evil will be allowed to run its course, and a, there will be a final judgment and resolution and restriction of all evil to the lake of fire. See, Christianity has an answer to the problem of evil. It isn't that God's going to resolve all injustices on your timetable, but God will resolve all injustice on his timetable. There is an ultimate accounting and resolution to evil. Part of what God is doing is sort of a scenario. I'll leave that up on the board a little bit more for make sure people get it down. There, there is something going on in creation that God is demonstrating with regard to evil. What began with evil was, first of all, in the angelic realm, you had a creature who wanted to assert his own desires. And the basic thing that Satan is claiming is that he wants to be like God. He wants to run things. God, I can do it better than you can do it. I have a better plan. You have made me all of these. Uh, I look around at all the other angels, and I can tell that I know more than all of them. I'm uh, more brilliant. I'm more... Uh, gifted, I'm more talented, I'm more powerful than all of the other angels. I want to run things myself. I want to be like God. That's Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 14, the five I wills of Satan. So there's this rebellion against God, and often people will say that Satan must have challenged God. In some way he said, God, how can you send a creature, a creature that you made, to an eternal punishment of lake of fire. That is a pretty miserable, incredibly uh, horrible punishment. And it's never going to end. You're not just going to send us there for a 1,000 years or 10,000 years or 100,000 years. You're going to send the creatures that disobey you to lake of fire forever and ever and ever. How can a loving God do that? That is uh, incredible. Shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? I mean, all I wanted to do was do it my way. How does this horrible punishment fit the crime? And so I believe that that's part of this challenge to God. And God is going to create the human race and does create the human race as, as an experiment. Now, I use the term experiment in the classic sense of the word, which means not to see what will happen. That's how most of us use the word. But an experiment classically is a procedure that is designed to demonstrate a truth. We know it's going to happen. I remember all the experiments I did in, in uh, chemistry in college. We all knew what was going to happen if we did it right. We were doing these things in order to follow procedure and to, and to show what would happen under certain circumstances. So that's what God is doing. Now, he creates... Adam and Eve places them in the garden. There's one test. It's a test of their volition. Are you going to be obedient or disobedient? And the issue is whether or not you're going to eat a piece of fruit. It's not this horrible, horrible sin. It's not murder. It's not genocide. It's not racism. It's not you know, slavery. It's not any of the things that modern man thinks of as horrible, horrible sins. It's just eating a piece of fruit, something that many of us will do at some time today. We'll eat a piece of fruit. It's innocuous, it's simple, but it represented disobedience to God, and what God shows is spiritual death in, and, in the universe and the corruption of the universe and all of the famines and all of the wars and all of the injustice all stems from the fact 
that somebody performed what appeared to them to be an innocuous little act of eating a piece of fruit, but it's when the creature, who is finite in his understanding, operates independently from the Creator, in even the most innocuous manner, it creates this reverberation of evil and corruption that changed the fabric of the universe. And so the reason God consigns these creatures to the lake of fire is because they are the ones who have originated all of this. And therefore, an eternity in the lake of fire is a just and fitting punishment for the creature acting independently of the creator. We have further things that that I'll talk about that are developed uh, in Scripture, we look at Jesus Christ and the virtues that are promoted for, for the spiritual life, v- virtues such as submission to authority and orientation uh, to the plan of God, being a servant rather than lording leadership over somebody, humility versus arrogance, obedience in all things as opposed to uh, disobedience, even in minor things, that that comparison and contrast shows the that on the one hand the character demonstrated by Jesus Christ stands in contrast, point by point, to that which is demonstrated by uh, by Lu- the creature Lucifer. So it's in this way that the human race functions to resolve the angelic conflict, because the human race is this test case that's going to demonstrate why evil is evil, why disobedience and independence from God is so horrific, and how God ultimately brings all of this together to a final judgment and resolution of the evil problem. And only Christianity has this. As I pointed out in the second point, the problem of evil is that Christian uh, critics ask this question, how can you really believe in a loving God when you have all this injustice and suffering in the world? And the third point, I point out that non-Christians don't have an answer to this. That's how I I like to respond to that. How can you believe in this God that's loving and all-powerful, and there's all this evil in the world. I say, well, why don't you explain it? Hindu, you can't. You have evil, you know, karma just goes on and on and on, this unending cycle and uh, 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 that never ends. You can't explain evil at all. Your system is so much worse. What about the evolutionist, the, the Darwinian? He, he has to have evil and injustice so that he can have struggle and the survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest presupposes the lack of survival of the unfit so that the means to advance is is suffering and death and misery for those creatures that are unfit so that those who are fit can survive. Uh, The worst explanation for evil in the world is in the Darwinian system because for them evil really has to be there, so therefore evil is good. And suffering is wonderful because that's how we go forward. So the third issue is non-Christians can't answer the problem of evil at all. So don't let yourself be put into a corner. Fourth point, God allows evil because he allows free will. If he didn't give creatures freedom, then they would not have that choice. But that freedom gives them choice and if you are, want to be free to succeed, you have to be free to fail. If you want to have the freedom to make good decisions and willingly love and obey God, you have to be free to make bad decisions and to fail. And so when you have the option of failure, then God had a plan to deal with the introduction of evil into the universe. And then the fifth point, God originally created angels with volition, Knowing that there would be a rebellion, evil would be introduced into the creation. He knew the whole scenario in his omniscience that was always immediately and simultaneously known to him. And so he had a plan for resolving this in such a way that it would be forever taken care of. And this is how human history fits within this this overall scope of the angelic conflict. (coughs) Now next time... We'll look at Isaiah chapter 14. Now, let me give you a hint. You ought to go home and read Isaiah 13 and 14 this week just to pay attention to what's going on here and because the 
the person that is condemned is identified as the king of Babylon. But you have to understand Babylon in terms of its total biblical framework, and especially the role of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. This is one of the interesting things is that you just can't understand Isaiah 13 and 14 if you don't have a solid dispensational understanding of what's happening in in uh, in Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And one of the early church fathers who was one of the first to clearly write a futuristic interpretation of the book of Revelation, understood this and and had the correct interpretation of this by the late 100s, showing that it was clearly understood in the early church, and we'll get into that next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us the uh, whys, of our existence, the purpose of our existence, understanding why evil exists and suffering exists in the universe, that when we face injustice, suffering, when we are hurt by living in this cosmic system, we understand that there is ultimate justice, that there is a God who is not only loving, but is righteous and just, and all injustice will be resolved, all sin and evil will be punished, And there will be an ultimate accountability for all creatures at the great white throne. Father, we are thankful that you, in your love, provided a perfect salvation for us. And you dealt with our own sin by imputing that to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That there he bore in his body on the cross our sin. That he paid the penalty as our substitute. So that you do not expect us to have to go out and earn it or to work for it but simply trust, simply accept his death on our behalf, simply rely upon him and his death as that which is sufficient for our salvation, that there's nothing that we add to it, there's nothing that we can do to improve upon it. It is simply a free gift of eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that they would that have ne- has never taken Uh, this gift for themselves, that they would accept it now, that they would understand that this gift is offered to them, that if they believe Jesus died for them, that at that instant you impute the righteousness of Christ to them, you declare them justified, and you give them eternal life, which can never, ever be lost. Father, we pray that as we meditate on the things that we're studying that God the Holy Spirit would apply these things to each of us and we would come to a better understanding of our role, our purpose, our function within this great, magnificent plan of yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.